0: WNYC Studios is brought to you by Zebiotics. Seize the day after a night of drinks with Zebiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink. Zebiotics was invented by PhD scientists to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is most responsible for making you feel crummy the next day. Drink Zebiotics before your first drink, drink responsibly, and you’ll wake up refreshed and ready to take on the day. Brian Lehrer on WNYC, and George Carlin is coming with all his stuff. I said he's here with all his stuff. (laughs) He'll be here in just a minute. Uh, He's coming up the elevator, I understand. So the legendary comedian um, named the second best stand-up artist of all time by Comedy Central turned 70 in May and uh, is releasing a 14-DVD retrospective called All My Stuff, So while he's coming, maybe he's late because he's got a lot of stuff to carry. I don't know. Stuff has been one of his major themes. So let's hear a little Carlin on stuff from 1986 and then from last year.
1: I would have been out here a little bit sooner, but they gave me uh, the wrong dressing room, and I couldn't find any place to put my stuff. And I don't know how you are, but I need a place to put my stuff, so that's what I've been doing back there, just trying to find a place for my stuff. You know how important that is. That's the, whole, that's the whole meaning of life, isn't it, trying to find a place for your stuff. That's all your house is. Your house is just a place for your stuff. If you didn't have so much goddamn stuff, you wouldn't need a house. You could just walk around all the time. That's all your house is. It's a pile of stuff with a cover on it. You see that when you take off in an airplane and you look down and you see everybody's got a little pile of stuff. Everybody's got their own pile of stuff. And when you leave your stuff, you gotta lock it up. Wouldn't want somebody to come by and take some of your stuff. They always take the good stuff. There are some more people who ought to be strapped into chairs and beaten with hammers. People who wear visors. Let me ask you something. What the f- is the point in wearing half a hat? Either get a hat or don't. No one's interested in the top of your head. Go back to the store and tell them to give you the rest of the hat. They cheated you. Better still, get yourself one of them little Jewish hats and sew it to your visor. Then you got yourself a full-fledged f- hat, my friend.
0: So, George Carlin from 1986, and then George Carlin from uh, just last year. What does he have against visors, anyway? All right, I'll tell you what. While he is getting up in the elevator and uh, getting his stuff parked in the green room and getting down the hall, Comedy Central named George Carlin the second best stand-up comedian of all time And I want to know who you think is the first. 212-433-WNYC, 433-9692. Call us right now and tell us who you think should be named the best stand-up comic of all time and who you think Comedy Central chose as number one. 212-433-WNYC. I'm not going to tell you who it is, and some of you probably know but George Collin was named by Comedy Central a couple years ago as the second-best stand-up of all time. Who was number one? 212-433-WNYC. And who should be number one, in your opinion? 212-433-9692. Jackson in Brooklyn, you're on WNYC. Hey.
1: Hey. How do you know it was me?
0: Well, uh, because you've called before. (laughs) Right,
1: right, right. Well, I mean, come on. Richard Pryor.
0: Well, yeah, (laughs) it was Richard Pryor, and so you agree with that designation? I certainly do. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, Hi, you're on the air. Who's this? Whoops. Nope. Let's try this one. Hi, you're on the air. Who's this? Ellen. Hi, Ellen. Hi. Well, my favorite is George Carlin, and always
1: has been, but I think they probably picked Richard Pryor.
0: Well, they did pick Richard Pryor, and you would actually put George Pryor, uh, George Carlin at the top of your list. Yes. What What do you, what, as he's getting here, maybe he'll even hear you praising him as he walks down the uh-huh. hall. And he'll say, say, just another listener sucking up to me. But what? why George Carlin? What do you love about him?
1: I don't know. He's so astute. He just, he picks little common things that, you know, nobody would think of and is just brilliant about him. I'll never forget when he first hosted Saturday Night Live. He was the very first host.
0: The very first host back in 1975, and it's a long way from there to doing the voice of the conductor on Thomas the Tank Engine. (laughs) Uh, But he's done all that stuff. Ellen, thanks a lot. And George Carlin is now here with all his stuff. You
1: have all your stuff? I think I do. I brought at least a portion, at least enough for this purpose. That's good.
0: That's good. Uh, It's great of you to come. You're from New York originally. Where would you grow up?
1: Upper West Side, Hunt Twenty Fifth in Amsterdam, Hunt Twenty Third in Amsterdam, West Harlem, White Harlem, Morningside Heights. Call it what you like.
0: You've always made a thing about calling it White Harlem. That's when right. A kid. It sounded
1: tougher, you know. If you go to a dance in another neighborhood, and some guy rolls up and says, "Hey, where are you from, man?" If you say Morningside Heights,
0: you're going to get beat
1: up. You could, you could. Yeah. But if you say White Harlem, man, they say, "Oh, okay."
0: What was the neighborhood actually like for you?
1: Well, it was it was a, a magnificently Schizophrenic in this respect. Um, <clears throat> to the south, up the hill, uh, was Columbia University and all of the institutional buildings that are uh, in that area St. John the Divine, Columbia, St. Luke's Hospital, and then uh, around me, Juilliard School of Music, Union Theological Seminary, Jewish Theological Seminary, Grant's Tomb, Riverside Church, Barnard College. Okay? Mm-hmm.
0: So. Serious neighborhood. Uh, yes.
1: And, of course, I went the other way. I went down the hill to the north uh, toward uh, 125th Street. I lived on 121st, actually, and uh, hung out down where life was more alive, where there was... Action on the street, and I was a street kid. I was an Irish kid, uh, kind of working class, middle working kind of class family.
0: If you went into the theological seminary, you didn't have to say you were from White Harlem in order to (laughs) be taken seriously.
1: But the nice thing about being next to all of those magnificent institutions is that it was a playground for us. This was before any sort of severe security. In fact, we started, we felt that our incursions into the bowels of these buildings and institutions Brought about some of the increased security that occurred in in the 60s.
0: 1940s and 50s is when you grew up there. Yeah, the
1: Manhattan Project was underway uh, because that's where it began behind uh, in the physics labs of Pupin Laboratory.
0: I read that as early as fifth grade, you listed your career ambitions as comedian, announcer, impersonator, DJ.
1: Yes, yeah, didn't seem like I needed attention. Trumpet player was in there, too. Actor was in there, too. I missed too. that one. Announcer and actor. Yeah, anything to stand up in front of people and have them say, ain't he cute, ain't he clever.
0: But at 10 years old, you knew what you were about.
1: That's right. I, re- I really did.
0: What kind of material were you doing in elementary school?
1: Well, uh, mim- I was a mimic, and I would. I was drawn toward um, the Danny Kaye type of verbal um, gymnastics. uh I liked songs like "Quanta uh, la Gusta la Gusta la Gusta la Gusta la Gusta la Gusta la Gusta." Things, things that were challenging verbally and vocally, and I made up things. I stole imitations of people that I heard on the radio on Horace Height or Ted Mack's Amateur Hour. And I just, you know, was, a, was a kind of like a kid who needed attention and approval and got it that way.
0: Some people uh, want to talk to you. They're calling in. We will take phone calls as we go for George Carlin. Not quite yet, but you can call in. Sure. 212-433-WNYC, 433-9692. Talk about the DVD. 14 discs. That's a lot of stuff.
1: Yes uh two of them are our in, interviews lengthy interviews that I find were very complete for people who are interested in you there are some folks who are casual fans and there are others who are more kind of devoted to you wh- whoever you are in the arts or entertainment and those people would enjoy a lot of the background stuff that's in the um the two interviews they're both each each is, uh, is an hour long uh, the other 12 discs are the HBO shows. I've done 13, actually, up to this point. One of them had a lot of retrospective clips on it from various TV shows, and it was too hard to get all those clearances, so we left that one out. So this is a this is 12 thirteenths of, and I don't know the decimal equivalent, 12 thirteenths of my uh, HBO career, which has really been the centerpiece of my the later and, and, and more um, um, robust part of my career.
0: Let's see. 13 goes into 100. Oh, never mind. Yeah. Uh, the press release with the DVD collection says, you are proudest of the fact that every two years you go on tour with new material. Did yeah. your publicist get that right?
1: Absolutely. And and I I provide those things, so there's no one making stuff up. <laughs> but yeah, of course. Uh, what I found is along the way for myself... As I began in the 1960s, uh, 62, especially when I broke up with my partner and became a single, uh, I, I always described myself in the interviews. You're talking I,
0: about professionally now. Yes, that's right.
1: <laughs> uh, after I um, had established a little bit of momentum, not, not a great deal, but just enough to be interviewed by people, I would always let them know that I wrote my own material. I was always proud of that. I would say I'm a comedian who writes his own material, which is the way I thought of myself proud of it because a lot of comedians don't and didn't, still don't. Um, and somewhere along the way I discovered I'd become a writer who performed his own material, which was a significant thing for me to discover because it moved me out of solely entertainment into and to artists as well. I mean, because a writer creates out of nothing, out of his observations, out of of what he or she sees around him. So, um,
0: And another way that people describe your genre, maybe you use this term, is observational comedy.
1: Well, you know, yes, 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 what you say is correct, but then I have um, a, a, a slight modification. I think all comedy, all writing, all art is observational. It all stems out of what we see. I think what they mean by observational is, you know what would be funny if your fingernails grew a little longer and you didn't, that kind of thing, the, the Seinfeld stuff. And I did a lot of that at one time. And I, I kind of went through periods of um, of, of uh, subject matter or uh, direction and, and finally have kind of arrived at a place where a lot of it is, is language oriented or uh, socially, social commentary I think would, not to take myself too seriously but that's what it amounts
0: to let me, let me go back uh, again and George Carlin is my guest on WNYC his new 14 DVD set called All My Stuff I read that you were in the room when Lenny Bruce was arrested mm-hmm. for the material in his act way back in the 50s, is that right?
1: yeah Yes, you want details or? Please. Just going, okay. Yeah. Uh, it was. I, I don't re- remember the exact year. It was actually in the '60s because I was already a comedian. I was working at the Playboy Club in Chicago. I had already broken up with my partner. Uh, I was a single by then, and Lenny was working in a place called the, the Gate of Horn. Uh, a coffee house with a liquor license, so that it wasn't just a folk hangout and, and, and a beatnik hangout. It was definitely the Chicago folky scene. It was the beatnik into the hippie era. The transition was going on, and it, so that it was it was that sort of milieu. And um, Lenny worked there. I had I had even worked there. Uh, but lenny filled that place uh it was a really nice place they had had an old Gatorhorn. and uh, the, what the and lenny did um a lot of things that the catholic church didn't like besides uh, the police in in chicago are an irish catholic um institution and and, and even in this in this city, which is, which the, was the same thing was true of, he was arrested downtown. The police went after him because the Catholic Church wanted him silenced. He was, he was, he was really. Um, A a force for exposing hypocrisy and the ugliness behind uh, religion and and the the noble things that they think of themselves.
0: Were you friends with him?
1: I I was an acquaintance, uh, I would say a friend who didn't see him very often. Um, He liked the fact that I was kind of, uh, I had a little bit of a rebel in me. But.
0: was that a transformational experience for no, you that no. night?
1: No, it was just it was, you know it, it was it's so mundane, it's so ordinary. Let me tell you, I was sitting in the audience watching the show with a fellow from a, a musical group called the Terriers. We were drinking beer. We were up in the in the balcony area, and at one point, a policeman stood up in the audience, and believe it or not, he actually had the either the irony or the good sense to say, "All right, all right, the show is over." Because that's a famous street police thing. After a suicide, everyone wants to see the body. Come on, come on! The show's over. There's open.
0: nothing to see here.
1: That's right. That's perfect. Yeah, he said it right. So he said that, and le- and and they really wanted to close this club because it brought Lenny Bruce in. That was their objective. So they checked the ID of every person in the place. Probably three hundred and something people, and it was slow going. And I kept drinking beer. And by the, and I was about the last one out. This guy and I, Vince and I, and as we came through the door, because they controlled the exit by checking IDs, you could leave if you were of If you weren't, boom. They did find a girl who was fifteen, and they closed the club. Eventually, took the license. But I, when I got to the policeman, he says ID, ID. I said I don't believe in ID. Which wasn't the right thing to say. He was a little tired at the end of the evening. And he was a policeman in the first place. So he took me by the collar and the back of the belt, and he escorted me to the wagon downstairs. That was the the ignominy of my, you know, with Lenny's great, famous, glorious, romantic bust, I was there for that.
0: But you, and we'll talk about this after a break in a minute, you had your own famous, glorious, ignominious bust in 1972. That's true. We'll play more clips from George Carlin, his 14 DVD retrospective, and talk to him. And we'll take your phone calls, 212 433 WNYC. Stay with us. Brian Lehrer on WNYC with the great comedian George Carlin. His New 14-DVD retrospective is called George Carlin, All My Stuff. As we were saying, you were arrested in 1972 Mm -hmm. in Milwaukee. Was that for the Seven Dirty Words routine?
1: Well, I was doing my act, which had all of those words in it anyway. And the problem there was it was uh, a thing called Summerfest 1972, and it's 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 done every year at the lakeside in in Milwaukee. It's a big exposition kind of fair midway uh, thingy, and the stage for the shows is outdoor, and the the audience is all outdoor, and so your the speakers carry beyond the perimeter of the theater itself
0: oh that was the legal
1: excuse that was the reason they, they, the, one of the policemen actually said mommies heard this and um, there certainly were no mommies in the audience <laughs> there <laughs> certainly weren't well I'm sure that you know we, we had our share of every type of person but but apparently they had I, the, the photo I have is magnificent of them walking me away there are six policemen. And I have on sandals because I was wearing sandals at that time. I had on, I had my my beard. I looked in this picture remarkably like Jesus, it, although I had denims on. And these six policemen. And I still have this magnificent front page f- photograph. Uh, th- my, and my thought was, you know, this was a verbal offense. This was called disturbing the peace, and it was it was not violent. It wasn't physical. Six policemen devoted to this. If
0: you think the Catholic Church was behind the cops going after Lenny Bruce (laughs) in Chicago that time, what was the underlying reason that that act, because you were doing the same material all over the country. Yes. Why there and then?
1: Um, I think, well, I I was, I was, um, I I can't say these things now on the radio, which would illustrate it clearly. But, I mean, I was talking to the audience and saying about, I was, the, the part of the think routine was about substituting the word F with a K on the end, which they do in newspapers, as if you're not supposed to know what came in the with middle. With asterisks. Yes. Um, substituting the word. Substituting that word for the word kill. And I, and I had a routine about that, and some of the formulations of that sounded really you know, odd to the untrained ear or the, un, the ear that didn't uh, like me.
0: or get what you were doing. Well, here is a clip of George Carlin from a 1978 HBO special riffing on Dirty Words.
1: Blue, off color. (laughs) Risqué. Well, we have more ways to describe Dirty Words than we actually have Dirty Words. They call them bad words. Dirty, filthy, foul, vile, vulgar, (laughs) coarse. In poor taste, unseemly, street talk, gutter talk, locker room language, barracks talk, bawdy, naughty, saucy, raunchy, rude, crude, lewd, lascivious, indecent, profane, obscene, blue, off color, (laughs) risque, suggestive, cursing, cussing, swearing, and all I could think of was...
0: Do you like our quick succession of bleeps there?
1: Yes, that was excellent. A fast, a quick, quick hand.
0: Uh, so that sets up this caller, Sophia in Queens. Sophia, you're on WNYC with George Carlin. Hello.
1: Hi. Hi, Sophia. When I
0: was in uh, grammar school, you corrupted me with the seven words you could be said on television. I excellent. I tell you.
1: Uh, And you're living a good, clean life these days, I assume?
0: Yeah, except that I sound like a truck driver now, but... Nothing
1: wrong with truck drivers. (laughs) (laughs) Thank (laughs)
0: you. I want to thank you for it, anyway.
1: Uh, Thank you for that. Thank you
0: very much. Now, this has remained an enduring interest of yours and of others. An episode of Everybody Hates Chris with Chris Rock revolves Mm -hmm. around him getting suspended from school for using material from your routine.
1: Really? I did not know that.
0: I've I've read that, I assume that that it's true, uh are you a Chris rock fan oh me? yeah,
1: I like chris yeah he he cares a lot about this this uh, the, the art of stand up the craft
0: and just a few years ago, uh, I read that a Republican congressman introduced yes. a bill to uh, make sure those words in the routine, although I gather he left one out, um, the one that starts with "t" nearly ends with T" and has an s" at the end. Has uh, yes, th- yes. Th- that one was excluded for some reason, but uh, you know, it was 2003, 2004. Congressmen are still reacting to your 1977 yeah. Dirty Words routine.
1: It's a sign of how deeply. Injured humans have been by religious superstition and fear, the guilt and shame and fear that comes from religious superstition about the body, about the sexual parts of the body, about the functioning of the body. They just can't handle it, and and they're going to run from it and try to cover it up as long as they can.
0: Do you think the place of bad words in our culture has changed in these 35 years?
1: I don't know how to define or describe the place of bad words in our culture. No, I I think... um, uh there 's the, the the culture has has bec- been more vulgarized and by that i mean it's 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 it 's it's lowered itself to what the people are as opposed to what the thinkers are and um i don 't know if that 's good or bad uh it it, it 's unattractive uh i, I you know it 's a hard i can 't read the well now have well let me
0: let me i 'll ask you this way now we have earnest African-Americans leading movements to ban the N-word in hip-hop. We have Isaiah Thomas under attack Nick's coach for calling an employee the B-word and saying it's not the same as when white people do it. We have Don Imus. Hmm. What do you think of the whole debate over race and dirty words, those words, the B-word, the H-word, the N-word?
1: Well, I, first of all, uh, and sometimes liberals, refer. Uh, the, when we talk about the people who don't want to be called liberals, they say they don't want to say the L-word, and they don't want to say the uh, D-word, the deficit word, and they don't want to say the R-word. R- this is a sign of how how fearful we are of free expression in this country is in that we ha- we can't even we we can't even utter some of these words that are all right we've had to take something the, the B word, the F word, the uh, we've had to take something that's been reserved for profanity previously and apply it to ordinary words now, which to me is a, a, just a sign of how uncomfortable we are with expression and free expression. And, and race uh, is just, uh, I never expected, liber- uh, I never expected uh, censorship to come from the left. It always historically had come from the right. I was used to that. And here came these uh, campus liberals with their speech codes, and I have an awful lot lot to say about that but it's lengthy and and it takes some time did
0: you have a position on the firing of imus
1: yes i i think uh i, I think I, I don't think he should have been fired that that's a that's a position i mean i, I it's harder to talk yeah. about it yeah. as an over you, there are yeah. so many aspects to it that that bear attention that you can't do it in sound bites. you know
0: ethan in manhattan you're on wnyc with george carlin hi
1: hi ethan hi george how are you doing ethan that's what we call you ethan Right, yeah, you had, uh, some material like that. How you doing? Um, the
0: first CD I ever bought was FN and AM.
1: Oh, good, good, and thank
0: you. Over the years, I've noticed that your comedic tone has changed drastically. Mm-hmm. You know, you used to do kind of light bits that usually used your voice, and now you have dark bits. And 10 uh, or 20 years ago, you learned to perform an entire act about death and suffering, like yes. you had in Life Is Worth Losing. Yes. Now you've always been about pushing the envelope and people's comfort zones. So is that what this is, and also, how are you able to mine such dark subjects for such funny material?
1: Well, it's not so much deliberately trying to establish new ground or push an envelope or, or anything, what it is is trying to explore the things that interest me, the things that, that consume my imagination sometimes and that I, that I think are, yes, in some cases, uh, things that people will squirm a little about. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think, I think that's what art is about. I think art should challenge uh, received wisdom, received notions, the things we're comfortable with and make us look at things in a little different way. Now, I don't sit around thinking to myself, gee, I'm an artist, I have to do this. I don't take myself that seriously. But I do know that these things happen without your mind them to me. They happen to me without my trying or, or even uh, knowing. Uh, so but I just do them.
0: I have a clip of, um, I think the kind of thing that he's talking about from your HBO special yes. from last year. Yes. Let's
1: listen. Suicide is an interesting topic to me because it's an inherently interesting decision to decide voluntarily not to exist anymore. It's profound. You know what it is? It's the ultimate makeover. That's why I think it belongs on television. In this, in this depraved culture we live in, with all these reality shows, suicide and television will be a natural. I'll bet you could have an all-suicide channel on cable TV. I'll bet you. They got all golf. What the f***? Huh? God damn. Jeez. You ever watch golf? You ever watch golf? It's like watching flies. If you can get a bunch of brainless ass and sit on waste a Sunday afternoon on that can. You know you can get some people to watch some suicides. All day long, 24 hours a day, nothing but suicides. Must die TV. Comedy
0: about suicide.
1: Sure. You you know, uh, it's it's about um, finding the things that, first of all, you do want to be somewhat novel. In, in, when, when you write or, or, or write songs or whatever, you want to, I like coming in the side door on topics. I like, I, 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 I like or coming in the window in the back, you know. To, I like looking at things from a new angle for me because in, in, inevitably it's new to the audience. And then, you know, there are three things. I read in Arthur Kessler's book, The Act of Creation, when I was a young man. Uh, I'm going to oversimplify this and get it s- I'm somewhat wrong. I'll be paraphrasing, but I will have the gist of it here. He said, the jester the jester begins with jokes, and that is what he does. He tells jokes. If, for some reason, he is able to to mount these jokes on the backs of good, sound ideas, if he's exploring ideas at the same time as he's merely making jokes, he becomes something of a philosopher as well. And then, if he can couch these thoughts... And these these jokes and, and so forth in marvelous language, language that makes us really pay attention and, and to, to say, ooh, then he's a bit of a poet. And it's, it's nice to try to, uh, without consciously doing it, to tap into all of these parts of us. And, and that's what makes the, the stuff I do good, I think, is that it has these elements.
0: George Carlin, my guest on WNYC, his new 14-DVD retrospective set called All My Stuff. I read that you don't vote. Is that right? That's right. That's right. That's right. You've been quoted saying elections only give us the illusion of choice. That's how you feel?
1: Yeah, I think Americans are, are led to feel free by the illusion of choice it, it, all, all through this culture. I mean, the, the only choice you really have in this country is paper or plastic. That's it. Uh, Cast or credit. Diet or, non, diet or regular, uh, Coke or Pepsi. Uh, there's Pepsi, no, we don't really have choices in this country.
0: Do you not uh, believe in electoral democracy?
1: No. I, I think, first of all, if you look at the structure of the political process, the electoral process in this country, the haphazardness, the uh, illogic of some of the steps, the primary system, the electoral college – the voting, where we can't get hardly half of these citizens to vote even. Uh, pardon the bad li- uh, grammar there. Um, uh, the, the the fact that immediately upon election, re-election begins. The cycle begins over for the person who's been elected. They have to raise money, they have to please people, they have to pay off debts. The lobbyists come to town with all of their money and get what they want, essentially. They pretty much, big pharmaceuticals, big agriculture, big insurance, big real estate, Big oil, you know the big... So
0: we know all that.
1: All right, that's why I'm saying that's why I don't believe in this process, and I think it needs to be blown up.
0: So is real choice attainable? Has any country ever met those standards?
1: I don't think so. I think... See, I, I got off... I divorced myself from the human race a long time ago and from this culture, this nation, because I think the human race has chosen to organize itself poorly. I think we were given great gifts. We were given this this supposable thumb, the ability to walk upright, binocular vision, and the mind that could distinguish between the objective and the subjective. And we have used these gifts to produce tequila lollipops that have a worm in the middle, pancakes that'll make, uh, I'm sorry, cell phones that'll make pancakes, you know. It, it's, it's an absurdity. We have, been di- we have been diverted with toys and gizmos from our lives being stolen from us in this country.
0: But to say you've divorced yourself from the human race, yes. it's such a big statement. It backs up what the previous caller said, which is that you've gotten more cynical over time.
1: Cynical is a word that I apply to people like the Ford Motor Company who ch- chose to continue to make the Ford Pinto when the gas tanks were exploding because it would have been cheaper to pay off the widows than it would be to retool. That's
0: cynicism. How do you characterize yourself?
1: As a skeptic and a realist. Now, I buy the fact that there is a version, there is a definition of cynic that fits me, and I'll take that. That's fine. Because... Uh, about, about the human race, I want to say. What what happened, and that's, that's a dramatic and overly, you know, melodramatic way of putting it. What happened was at some point I realized I didn't really see any – I didn't see a good ending to any of this. I don't still – you can smell the end coming. You can smell it. We don't know. We've already had peak oil. We've already had peak water in the southwest and the southeast. People don't know this. They go about their business. And I felt – that in order, in fact, it just happened. I described it to myself afterward. I found that by divorcing myself emotionally from any interest in a certain outcome, without being a cheerleader for a result, I could detach myself emotionally and be more of an objective writer. Mm-hmm. I could look at things more fairly from my point of view. But
0: I think that in the 60s and 70s, your work gave a lot of young people hope about the future. That's true. Probably. You articulated what a lot of kids thought was absurd about the established view yes, of yes. words and war and God. But by saying it out loud and making fun of it, you gave people hope that things could be different. Did you ever see your work that way?
1: Not not from my perspective. If I read that someone said that, I would say, oh, I, yeah, I can kind of see that. But when they say, for instance, to me, do, do you try to make people think? Uh, I say, no, 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 no. That would be the kiss of death. Really, it would. If you went out at the door every morning, I'm going to make people think.
0: Because then you couldn't make them laugh, and then you wouldn't be That's right.
1: heard. I just I just want them to know I'm thinking. And I know that laughter opens the doors to perception. It, it, allows, it allows a thought to get in because you're completely unguarded and zen-like when you're laughing.
0: Maritza in Queens. You're on WNYC with George Carlin. Hello.
1: Gentlemen, good morning. <clears throat> Hiya. I'm extremely nervous. I hope that this will make sense. You'll first be all right. And foremost, first and foremost, I wanted to ask, how does Mr. Carlin manage to memorize <laughs> those symphonic soliloquies that he delivers in his shows? Because, albeit his own, it's nonetheless really, really difficult.
0: So many words delivered so quickly and with such precision. And as you say, you're a writer. You're not just making it up.
1: Yes. Uh, the, the one advantage you have is that they are your own thoughts and your own flow of logic. So that, that flow is easy to remember if it's yours and not something you're picking up to read, uh, uh, to, to memorize from someone else. The other thing is the old-fashioned way, repetition. That poem at the beginning of the last HBO show called A Modern Man, which is about four and a half minutes. I'm a modern man, a man for the millennium, digital, smoke-free, a diversified, multicultural, postmodern deconstructionist. That I read on the stage for two years, knowing that it would burn itself in. And one night I put the paper down and it was there. I had it by, from memory. So it's a matter of repetition and caring about the material. And uh, there are mnemonic tricks you can do. You can say, there are, okay, there are two Bs in the end of that paragraph. I'm switching topics in the next paragraph, so this is a hard one. I'll look for, for a B, and I find the B or something, something similar between the end of one paragraph and the beginning of another, and that helps you, and then you can forget that after a while.
0: So are you a modern man in this sense? Do you use the web?
1: I do. I use the tools available. I, I don't over-involve myself with uh, people say, well, you know, you're selling DVDs, and if you think this is such a bad culture, how come you're selling tickets? Well, somewhere along the way, a person has to accommodate themselves, which is another word for, for compromise, has to compromise with the system as it is in order to function. The, the stark choice is to live in the woods and make clothing out of trees and bark and eat, you know, mushrooms. The the other thing is to be fully involved and, and to be a horrifying citizen. I try to take as much out of this culture as I can use to work against it.
0: Is the Internet good for democracy?
1: I, th- I think this whole movement toward... Um, User content, uh, to use a, a term for everything else, for broad-based, um, uh, people people generating things. Oh, I, I think it's very good. I don't know if it's good for democracy. I think it's good for humanity.
0: George Carlin, at age 70, still writing a new show every two years?
1: I'll be doing another show March 1st. It's called It's Bad For You, and it's about the BS... Uh, that uh, fills our lives in America. The, America. the the official government BS, the political BS, the, the commercial BS, and the BS we tell ourselves.
0: Any New York dates that you know of?
1: We're, we'll come back. To, uh, this show that I'm going to do won't be at the Beacon Theater again. It'll be out on the West Coast in Santa Rosa. But we'll come back to the Beacon for regular shows, probably.
0: And the 14-DVD retrospective called George Carlin. All my stuff. It's been an honor.
1: Thank you very, very much. It's been a lot of fun. Here's another pack of low grade morons who ought to be locked into portable toilets and set on fire. These people with bumper stickers that say, We are the proud parents of an honor student at the Franklin School. Or the Midvale Academy, or whatever other innocent sounding name has been assigned to the indoctrination center where their child has been sent to be stripped of his individuality and turned into an obedient, soul dead conformist member of the American consumer culture. (laughs)